Thank you, guys. And you guys are so talented. That was so good. Yeah, great job. Thank you guys for serving all of us. All right, we're in Luke chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to have it on the screen here. And I invite you to rise. We're going to read, beginning verse 27. We're going to read the whole passage that will be our sermon text for the day. This is Luke 5, beginning verse 27. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old one. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Now on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you will guide us as we study it now. I pray that you would give me strength uh, to guide us well. And Lord, help us to receive what you would have for us today. Help us to receive it in faith for your glory. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. So in, in 1962, there was a physicist named Thomas Kuhn, and he, he introduced the world to a phrase that has become pretty common today. The, the phrase is paradigm shift. Now, most of you guys have probably heard that before. You've probably used it in some way. You may or may not have known where, you, where it came from. But Kuhn was a physicist. He was a bit of a philosopher. And at the time, uh, most people, when they thought about science, they thought about it more or less marching forward in one direction toward a better understanding of reality. But, but Kuhn came along and he said, you know, that's really not how progress happens. Sometimes there are these 
periods where things are a bit uncertain and there's a bit of a revolution of sorts where our previous assumptions are radically corrected. So an example that most of us would be familiar with would be what they call the Copernican Revolution, where before Nicholas Copernicus, we, we used to think that the Earth was the center of the solar system and the sun and everything else went around it, right? And then Copernicus said, no, 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 the sun is the center and the Earth and everything else goes around it. It revolves around the sun. Once you, once you make that shift from thinking of things like this to thinking of things like that, you have to radically alter everything else to match. And Kuhn said this is a paradigm shift. And the fact that it's become kind of a buzzword today is evidence of how helpful it is at describing these kinds of changes that have revolutionary implications. Basically, what Kuhn was saying in the context of science was sometimes you can't simply add new ideas to the old. You have to shift your thinking altogether and then almost start from scratch and build from the ground up. And I think it's a helpful idea to help us understand these stories we just read because what we just read is Jesus is challenged by those who are refusing to adjust their thinking. They've, they've got these particular ideas in mind and this particular framework of how they think the world works. And Jesus is calling his followers to a radical paradigm shift. He's saying, the old is going away, the new has come, and you better get on board. And those who are unwilling to get on board are the ones that are having problems in each of those stories. Now, the particular ideas they're having problems with are not necessarily the same sort of old ideas that we might have to turn away from today in our own, in our own context. But I think we face the same challenge. I mean, when, when we hear the teachings of Jesus, when we hear them this morning, will we embrace them and adjust our thinking to fit his call? Or will we try to fit what he says into our framework? Try to make what he says match what we more or less already think. So as, as we're looking at this passage, I want to focus on three paradigm shifts that Jesus calls his followers to, and, and we'll have one to sort of frame each section of the text. So the first one, the first big shift that we see here is from what we might call from separation to service, from separation to service. And we see it there in verse 27, beginning in chapter five. So the beginning of our, our text shows us where Jesus called the tax collector Levi to himself. He says, follow me. Now, Levi, just a, a side note, is the, is the same guy that the other Gospels call Matthew. So um, Mark 2 and Matthew 9 both tell a similar story, except the guy's name is Matthew. Uh, this was pretty common in, in uh, first century for someone to have two names. Uh, we, we met Simon Peter last week, and, and you know sometimes he's called Simon. Sometimes the text will call him Peter, sometimes Simon Peter. Levi Matthew is who we're talking about here. Now, I don't know why, if you had a great name like Matthew, I don't know why you'd ever want to go by Levi, but that's, that's just me. But for whatever reason, he let Luke call him that. And so Luke tells us the story of when Jesus called Levi. And it's interesting because when Jesus called Simon, he called him with this miraculous work. Remember last week, he, he, the, the great catch of fish? With Levi, he just says, follow me. And, and yet Levi gets up, he rose, and, and he followed him. And we don't know exactly why. We're not really told much about what he was processing through and why all this made sense to him. I mean, it's, it's possible that maybe he watched that miracle we ended with last week. Maybe he saw the, 
paralytic get lowered down into that building and, and then he saw the guy walking out and that caught his attention. That's possible. Uh, it may be that Levi was just merely ready for a change and he had been following the teachings of this man for some time. Uh, what we do know about him is that he was a tax collector. And tax collectors, if you've read the New Testament at all, you know tax collectors were guys that had a bad reputation. Uh, they, were, they were known for swindling. They were kind of known for their dishonesty. Uh, not all of them were dishonest, of course, in how they uh, performed their duties. But let's just say that their duties left plenty of room for them to possibly cheat people out of money and them to end up pocketing the extra. And so uh, Levi was a tax collector. Tax collectors, interestingly enough, get a lot of attention in the Gospel of Luke. Remember our, our first sermon on Luke? I told you Luke seems to have a special interest in the outsider and how Jesus extends grace to those that are far from him. And if you, if you read through the text, or if you just search tax collector in your uh, online Bible or your app or whatever, you'll see that Luke talks about tax collectors way more than any of the other Gospels. And there, there's a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector that only Luke tells us. There's a story of that little tax collector, Zacchaeus, we all know, that only Luke tells us. Uh, there seems to be an emphasis in Luke on how Jesus reaches out to those that, that seem to be farthest away, that seem to be uh, most unlikely to come to him. And Levi is a perfect example because all Jesus does is speak a word to him, follow me, and Levi leaves all to follow him. And so we see that the call of Jesus is effective. It's effective for entrance into new life. Uh, he, he doesn't have to do anything miraculous to impress Levi. And, and Levi doesn't have to do anything extra to come to him. He said, Jesus said to Simon, follow me. He doesn't say to Levi, fix yourself because you're such a mess and then follow me. He just says, follow me. It's the same call. It's just as effective. And so Levi leaves all. He comes to him. And then he throws this great feast, beginning in verse 29. And there's a large co company of his buddies, tax collectors and others, reclining at the table with Jesus and some of his disciples. And the Pharisees don't like this. They start to grumble. And in verse 30, they ask, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This is interesting. Uh, the Pharisees seem to have this perspective of godliness that's defined by separation from the ungodly. And so uh, those who are righteous would never mingle with those who are unrighteous in the mind of the Pharisees. And so they see Jesus and his disciples with all these guys that they know to be bad people. And they think this isn't right. Why are you eating and drinking with such folks? And it's easy to, to hear that and think about how judgmental the Pharisees are and how bad they are and how we all are, are so much better than them today. But the reality is that's a very easy mindset to, to let develop in your own head. That, that godliness is about me separating myself from those that might infect me in some way with their sin. And if you, if you don't believe that that is capable of infiltrating your own thinking, I'd invite you to stop and look at the example of Levi for a second. I thought about this this week, uh, and I, I'll be honest with you guys, it's very convicting for me personally to, to think about this. Um, so I, this next part, I'm not saying by any means from a position of having mastered it and trying to bring you guys along. I'm... I'm telling you what I felt conviction over as I was looking over this this week in my own life. Um, here's what we have with Levi. You see, he leaves all to follow Jesus, and yet in leaving all, he doesn't leave everyone behind, right? Because he, he throws this party, he throws this feast, and he invites his friends along that he wants to introduce to Jesus. 
It's, it's actually pretty incredible that he's, he's trying to bring them along so that they can understand the grace and mercy of this one whom he has come to follow. And the thing I got to thinking about this week is you know, the longer you are a believer, and I know we've got a lot of folks in our church here who have been Christians for some time, the, the longer you're a believer, the less likely you are to have friends like Levi has here. You know, when, when you first become a Christian, especially if you became a Christian as an adult, like this is what your life would look like. You, you only have non-Christian friends. And so you, you want to share Jesus with them. You want them to know the grace that you've experienced. You want them to know about the love of God that you've experienced in Christ. But then the longer you're a believer, the, the less and less likely you are to have a circle of friends like this. And some of that's natural and good as you develop relationships in the church. I mean, we, we just prayed about, you know, that God would increase our love for one another. That's a, a good thing. But, but here's a question I got to thinking about this week that really bothered me. If I were to throw a party like this, if you were to throw a party like this, would you have any guest who didn't know the Lord? I mean, if I were just to invite my closest friends to a feast, the reality for me, just being honest with you, all of them would be Christians. I don't like that. That, that bothers me. If, if that's true of you, I hope it bothers you as well. Now, now some of you guys are in context where you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I, all of my friends are unbelievers. I, I grew up in a non-Christian home. I'm the nut job that has come to believe all this stuff, and everybody thinks I'm crazy. If that's you, I pray that you take some encouragement here in the example of Levi. It may, maybe you could be a conduit of others coming to know the grace of God, like, like Levi is trying to do with his friends here. But I know, I know us as a church. I, I, know, I know most of you guys. Many of us work in context where we primarily work with other believers. I mean, my adult life, I've worked at churches and seminaries. I've never led a coworker to the Lord. It just, it just hasn't happened. Um, I don't know what that says about me or them. It's just the reality I'm in, you know? Um, and so if, if I'm going to have friendships like this, and if, if those of you that are in similar kind of context are going to have friendships like this, we've got to take some serious intentionality to ever have the kind of relationships where we could invite other people into our world where they could come and see what we have experienced in Christ. So as we're seeing this scene here, it's easy to, to just kind of hear the Pharisees getting frustrated and think, oh, they're so judgmental and all this kind of stuff. But the reality is many, many of us, if we were to put ourselves in the scene, we'd look a whole lot more like the Pharisees who don't really know a lot of tax collectors and sinners than Matthew who couldn't help but invite all his lost friends over. So something to think about as we're considering this. But in the moment here, uh, Jesus is, is not going to take this from the Pharisees. He's quick to correct them. And really what he does here is he attempts to, to call them to shift their paradigm, to, to alter their thinking. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, I, I haven't come to separate myself from the unhealthy. I've come to go after them. Like a careful and loving physician, I'm going to go to the ones that have need and I'm going to call them to new life through me, through repentance. And so he comes to bring new life for the sinner and for the rest of us, new perspective to the outsider so that we wouldn't look at the Levi's of the world and think, well, there's no place for them at our table. But we would, we would look to them and think, how could I go to them? What sacrifices do I need to make to have them in my life in such a way that I can introduce them to the love I have, I've come to know in Christ Jesus? 
It's, it's shifting our mindset from separating to serving. So that's the first shift we see here, from separation to service. The second one uh, we could think of as a shift from rules to relationship, from rules to relationship. You look at verse 33 here, and this is probably a different scene. If you just read it in Luke, it, uh, it sounds like this is all happening at that dinner party uh, at Levi's house. Uh, if you read it in the other Gospels, it, it sounds more like this is probably two different things happening that Luke just kind of put together closely. Be that as it may, the disciples are again uh, charged with doing something that the Pharisees think they ought not to do. And so they say, the disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, Jesus, they eat and drink. And so the question is, why aren't your disciples fasting? All right, so fasting was a, a tradition in the, the Jewish faith. Uh, there were certain times a year in which the law called them to gather as a nation and fast together. Uh, the Pharisees had kind of taken that a, an extra step or two. They had begun to fast on every Monday and Thursday at the time, uh, praying for the nation, and they began to, to challenge others to do the same. And, and they began to challenge others in such a way that they made it a rule. Right? So it's one thing to say, this would be good for other people to do. It's another thing to say, why aren't you guys doing what we do? And, and that's where they were at. They were trying to make this into some kind of rule. Jesus doesn't really take up that technicality with them but he tries to challenge their thinking altogether. He tries to shift their entire perspective. And so he gives them three images. And I think these are particularly vivid for helping us get our minds around what's going on in this overall passage. So the first thing Jesus says is basically, you don't fast at a wedding, okay? Weddings are celebrations. Uh, at weddings, you feast. Uh, I mean, when you go to a wedding, you know, you're always curious. I, I know as a guest at weddings, I always wanna know, how long is this gonna take? And I wonder how much they're serving at the reception. Um, never do I go in with a mindset of fasting. I'm going to deprive myself of food. I'm going to have a, a mournful countenance. That would be sort of opposite of, of what weddings are typically about. And so Jesus says, look, you don't fast at a wedding. And this, this time that we're in right now, it's like a wedding because the bridegroom is present. And when he says that, he's not just making a comment about weddings. He's making a comment about himself. He, you see, the, this imagery of bridegroom, it, it, it begins in the Old Testament, this idea that, that God's people are like a bride, and, and he's been cultivating this relationship with them. He's been preparing them for a day when their groom would come. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is the groom is here. And, it, and in the first century, by the way, weddings, uh, the, the focal point of the wedding celebration was the groom. Right? It's a little different than what we do today on her special day. And I always, I always coach guys that are getting married, like, you're just an accessory in this process. Uh, you're just part of the photos. Uh, this is about what she wants. Um, in the first century, it was about the groom. That was just the cultural context. And so what Jesus is saying here is, look, all of history has been moving toward this moment. And, and what's happened is I have arrived. Right? So it, it wouldn't be appropriate for my disciples to be walking around mourning and fasting and saddened by what's going on. This is a time of joyous celebration. But catch this, it's joyous because Jesus is here. Right? It's about this new relationship that he's going to offer. So the first image is that of a wedding. And then he says, you don't tear, he gives him two little parables here. You don't tear a new garment to put it on an old one. The, the idea here is, 
You know, if you've got a hole in an old piece of clothing, you wouldn't rip something new to patch it up, right? And again, first century context, a little different than our own. We wouldn't rip something to patch it. We'd just go buy something new. But, you know, in, our, in that day, you had to figure out how to patch it up. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't take something brand new and attach it to something old. What, what Jesus is getting at here is something new is happening in your midst, and you can't just stitch it to your old ways. You can't just pair the two together and hope for everything to work out. And that becomes even more clear in that third image when he says you don't put new wine into old wineskins. Again, first century context. We've got to understand what he's talking about there. Uh, wineskins in the first century context typically built uh, or, or constructed out of um, like the neck of a goat or a lamb. Uh, really appetizing. Uh, they would sew together, the, dry the skin, sew it together, and then they would pour wine in it and leave it to ferment. And when wine ferments, it expands. And so if, if you use some old, brittle wine skin and you put new wine in it, what Jesus says here is it's going to burst and you're going to lose the wine skin and you're going to lose the wine, right? It's going to destroy both. So we think about those images. I think there are two ideas I want us to take from all that. One is this, this turn from the old to the new that Jesus is, is trying to help them see that, that is happening among them. He wants them to see it hinges on his presence. This turn from the old to the new, is, is, it's not about a particular time in history. It's not about anything else that's going on in the world at the time. It's what makes the old go away and the new arrive is that Jesus has come. So it's not about finding new rules to follow. It's about discovering a new relationship with the Son of Man. It's that shift from rules to relationship, and it hinges on the presence of Christ. The second thing he wants them to see there is attempting to fit this new paradigm into the old way of thinking is going to destroy both, right? You can't take the gospel of Jesus and just pour it into the old containers of Judaism. That's what Jesus is, is saying to the Pharisees in that day. See, you may have sought salvation in the past through your rule keeping, but now you'll see that you'll never actually find it through any means except a relationship with the Son of Man. That's the point Jesus is making. And yet, as we see in verse 39 there, some folks are going to refuse to change. You know, I think that's the point he's making there. He says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. I think, I think that's uh, kind of making fun of the Pharisees a bit. He's saying, you guys are stuck on your old wine. You won't even taste the new stuff. You've developed such a taste for your old ways that you don't have an appetite for this new thing that's happening among you. And again, I think it's, it's helpful for us to think about, do, are we ever guilty of the same sort of thing? I mean, do, do we ever try to take the new wine of the gospel and fit it into our old existing categories in one way or another? And I think all of us have. All of us have been like the Pharisees in this moment where we read something in the gospels or, or we hear something taught from the life and ministry of Jesus and we think, well, that can't be. That just, that just doesn't fit with how I thought things were. It, just, it doesn't fit with how I want things to be. What Jesus is saying is you have to make a decision here. Are you going to receive the new? Or are you going to keep sipping from the old and reject what has come? He's calling his followers again to a, a paradigm shift from rules to a relationship with him. 
All right, so the first, the first shift was from separating to service. The second shift is from rules to relationship. The last shift is from law to love, from law to love. And we see that in these two little stories in uh, the beginning of chapter 6 here. So for the first century Jew, when we start talking about this shift away from these religious categories, it would bring up a whole host of questions about the law. Right? I mean, so, so what do we do with the law now if this guy's saying it's all actually about a relationship with him? And so Luke gives us a couple stories to kind of drive home Jesus' point. And they both focus on the issue of, of observing the Sabbath. And Sabbath was uh, the Jewish recognition of Saturday as a holy day, a day of rest, a day when they ought not to work as, a, as an acknowledgement of God's rest in creation, as an, as an acknowledgement of their trust in Him. And so there are all sorts of arguments about how in the world do you define work and what are you allowed to do on the Sabbath and what are you not allowed to do. That's kind of the background for both of these little stories. But I think what Luke's telling us and putting these together and, and putting them right here after, after that conversation, is this is what happens when you try to stitch the old and the new together. Right? These stories are going to feel a little absurd, and they're going to feel a little absurd because you've got people trying to pour new wine in old wineskins. They're trying to patch a new garment onto an old piece of cloth. And we're just going to see how broken that becomes. So let's look at the first one. The central question of the first one is, should the disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath? And no, that's not a question that anyone woke up this morning with burning in your mind. But bear with me and, and you'll see the significance of this. So the disciples are walking through a field. They start plucking some grain. They're rubbing it together and they're just kind of having a snack. And the Pharisees are bothered by this. Why? Because it's the Sabbath. We're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. The Jews would typically prepare their meals the night before so they could sort of have leftovers that day and not even have to work in the kitchen. And they certainly wouldn't want to go out to the fields to pick food. And the disciples aren't harvesting a crop right here. They're just sort of grabbing some stuff and having a little snack. And so they're not actually breaking any Old Testament laws, but what they're doing is definitely contrary, contrary to what we might call the, the Pharisees' traditions, their, their basic understanding and interpretation of the law. So what's Jesus going to do here? Well, he, he counters with an example from the Old Testament. This is in 1 Samuel 21, if you want to read about it. Uh, he says, well, remember David and his men when they were hungry. You guys know King David in the Old Testament. Uh, there was this time, 1 Samuel 21, they're fleeing from Saul. They're in the midst of battle. They're, they're running for their lives, quite literally. And they come to the temple and they're starving. They have no means of access to food. And in the temple, there is housed a, a loaf of bread called the bread of the presence. And it, it had some particular imagery in, in the Old Testament and some significance to the Jews at the time uh, in, in representing the presence of God and their, their union with him and that sort of thing. Uh, but the rule was, the law was, only the priest could eat from the bread. And yet in 1 Samuel 21, David and his men are passing through, they're hungry, they, they're, they're in battle, and they eat from the bread. And the priest stands down and doesn't correct him. And the text in telling the story just tells it. it. It doesn't say anything about whether what they did was right or wrong. So Jesus brings this up and he says, look, you know, the priest didn't have a problem with that. Samuel didn't have a problem with that when he was reporting it years later. Are you guys saying that what David and his men did back then was wrong? 
He's, he's kind of cornering the Pharisees in such a way to say, you know, if you're going to condemn my men for just having this little snack because it's the Sabbath, you're also condemning David, right? You're, you're condemning the choice of King David in providing for his men on this occasion. The, the, the bigger picture of what's going on there is Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, your attitude about the law is completely out of bounds. You've, you've lost sight of the purpose of the law. The law was given by God to serve man, to meet the needs of man. And so when human need crashes up against the law, it's the law that should bend, not human need, right? Love should guide how we apply these laws. That's basically what Jesus is saying. And, as he's, and he's saying, David knew that. David knew that. I know that. My disciples know that. Don't you guys know that? Why don't you guys know that? Right? He's, he's helping them see how absurd their, their thinking is. And we don't get uh, the, uh, the Pharisees' opinion. We don't get their, their feedback or their response to this. But instead, we get another story from Luke. And I think the reason Luke throws this next story in here is just to again show how absurd their thinking is. Like this is how bad it got as they were focused on the law and not thinking about how to show love to other people. So last story here in uh, beginning verse six, should Jesus do good on the Sabbath? He's in the temple, he's teaching. There's a man there with a withered hand. We don't get a whole lot of details about what was going on with him, but uh, he had some sort of condition where his hand was not functioning in some way. a little bit of background. The Pharisees would have said, you're allowed to save someone's life on the Sabbath. But in order to not do unnecessary work, if somebody comes in with a non-life-threatening condition, like a withered hand, you really ought to wait till the next day to help that person out. Because that, that could wait. That was kind of their line of thinking. So Jesus knows this. They know this. They're in the temple. They're wondering what Jesus is going to do. And I like this scene because Jesus gets a little sassy here. And he, he's kind of like, well, let's just see, okay? So he gets everyone's attention. He says, let me ask you guys a question. Is it lawful for me to do good on the Sabbath? I mean, and I, I don't know about you, but I kind of picture being, Jesus being kind of kind of uh, snarky here. You know, like, I mean, Lord knows we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but are we allowed to help people? I mean, are we allowed to show love? Are we allowed to be merciful in the most simple and fundamental ways as we care for one another? Is, is that permitted in your all's system? And you can just kind of hear the Pharisees not answering, right? And, and then the implication is, and then he gets the guy. He says, you come out here. You there with the withered hand, come out here. And the implication is, if I'm wrong, surely God would not use his power through me to heal this man, right? So again, the Pharisees are backed in a corner, Right? Either I'm going to heal him and we're all going to see how absurd your rules are or I'm going to try to heal him and we're going to see that I ought not to be doing stuff like this on the Sabbath. Right? And so he brings the guy in the center of the room. The text tells us Jesus looked around at all. Again, I think there's a little bit of, you guys are watching, right? You guys see what I'm about to do? And then everybody's wondering, is Jesus going to work? Is he going to transgress the Sabbath? Is he going to cross the line and do great things? And Jesus says, Stretch out your hand. He doesn't have to call a doctor. He doesn't have to get out his medical equipment. He doesn't have to do 
any great things. A simple word from him is enough work to transform this man's life. All of a sudden, he reaches out his hand, and a hand that hasn't worked is now functioning. And, and, and I think in that moment, if we were there, I think we'd all come to the conclusion that Luke's driving at here. This is nuts. Right? I mean, the, the one who is among us, the teaching he is bringing, the new life he is offering is so fundamentally different from anything we have ever known that it would be crazy to try to stitch it together with our old ways. It would be crazy to try to take this new wine of the gospel of Jesus and pour it in these old containers and fit it into this Judaic system. That would be nuts. I mean, look where it leaves us when we try to do that. We're standing around bickering over whether or not this guy can do work on the Sabbath. And all he's got to do is speak a word. And this man's body is changed. and His hand is healed. Now, again, I think it would be easy to look at these Pharisees, and we could look at them there in verse 11. They're getting pretty frustrated. They're filled with fury. Tension is mounting. We're going to see this as we keep going in the gospel. It would be easy to look at these stories and think how foolish they were. But I think what the Spirit of God would have us to do instead is to look at these stories and then look at ourselves and ask some tough questions. We're not worried about Sabbath observance and fulfilling the law and love and, and these exact sort of things in our own day. But are there, ever, are there ever times when you allow your own kind of pre-existing categories to define the things that you think God ought to do for you? I mean, are there ever times when the way you, you think about things is more informed by your, your background or the part of the country you were raised in or your, your home life or the political commentary you read on a regular basis or, or whoever than it is by the gospel of Jesus? I mean, do, do you ever find yourself feeling the tension of the old wineskins as they're trying to hold something that is brand new and totally different? See, the, see, the call of the gospel is, is unlike anything we've ever known before. Jesus does not come to just tinker with our religion. He doesn't come to offer us a couple tweaks. You know, you're going this way. Let me just, just a smidge here. And okay, now you're on the right course. Now he destroys the course. You're completely, utterly headed in the wrong direction. Your only hope is for me to rescue you and for you to leave all and turn and follow me. That's the call of the gospel. And so this, this revolution that Jesus offers, is, it's about one paradigm shift after another. It's, it's not just this initial moment of, I'm going to turn from my old ways and I'm on this new path and everything is good. It's day in, day out, realizing over and over and over, my mind is going to drift back to those old ways. Those old wineskins are really comfortable. That old garment it just feels like home. And so if I don't beg the Lord to over and over call me into this newness of life, I'll inevitably drift back to my old ways. So as we're going to our communion time today, I want to I invite you guys to ask the Lord to renew your minds this morning. Uh, to, to take this whole idea of wineskins and, and the old and new and just put it before yourself and ask yourself, have I, have I really turned my thinking or are there ways in which I'm still clinging to my old ways?
And, and to help us in that, I, I, I want to I wanna read something to you. I was talking with Hart and Ian this weekend. I was telling a little bit about what I had in mind for today. And uh, Hart mentioned this prayer that um, is found in the Valley of Vision. Any of you guys know what the Valley of Vision is? It's this collection of Puritan prayers. Uh, this guy named Arthur Bennett, I think back in the 60s, uh, read a whole bunch of Puritans. And he found a whole bunch of their prayers and their writings, and he pulled them together, did some editing, and, and you can buy this little book called The Valley of Vision. It's just a collection of prayers. It's a great resource. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good guide for uh, putting words to your thoughts and, and, and feelings, uh, especially when you're not sure how to pray. If you've never used a prayer guide in any way, uh, that might stress you out a little bit. Um, you do that every single week when we sing songs, right? And we tell you the words to sing. You guys aren't just making those up. You sing along with us. It's the same thing. You just don't have music in the background, right? So it's just a, a guide to your prayer where you're using somebody else's words to hopefully put some, some words to your own thoughts and feelings. And so I want to close by reading the words of a, a Puritan prayer here. And then we're going to leave the last slide up on the screen for you guys. And we just invite you to, to just let the, this roll over in your minds uh, as we go to the communion table this morning. Really asking the question, have, have, I, have I made this shift from old to new? So this is the prayer, and this will be our closing prayer. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. So let me learn by paradox. I could have said, let me learn by paradigm shift. Um, 300 years early, but let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, and thy glory in my valley.